Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. How should we live in an absurd world? I'm Sean Illing, and today I'm your host for The Philosophers, a new series from Vox Conversations about great thinkers and their relevance today. Like a lot of American students, I was assigned Albert Camus' novel, the stranger in high school. I'm pretty sure I forgot about it the second I finished it. I didn't think about Camus again until I was in graduate school almost a decade later, and I picked up one of his lesser-known books called The Rebel. About halfway through it, I knew that it was going to change the way I thought about the world. And it did. This is the first episode of a new series we're doing called The Philosophers. Each episode in this series will examine the ideas of some philosopher or philosophers from the past. We want to explore how these thinkers can help us make sense of our world today. And for the inaugural episode, I chose Camus. So why Camus? And why now? It's because Camus has so much to say about this moment. He was a philosopher, a journalist, a playwright, a novelist, and a member of the French Resistance. He wrote against the backdrop of Nazism, and all his energy and talent was devoted to figuring out how to be a decent human being in an indecent world. The horrors of Camus' time are different from our own, but not as different as we might hope. We all know that right now, a great power in Europe is trying to conquer a weaker power, simply because it can, because it has some claim to historical greatness. Meanwhile, men, women, and children are dying on the streets. It's the kind of political obscenity we haven't seen in a very long time. And it's a reminder that we're still very much living in the cruel shadow of history. 
I wrote about Camus two years ago, in the early days of the pandemic. Camus' novel, The Plague, was flying off the shelves again. But that book is about much more than a virus. The plague in that story was intended as a metaphor for the Nazi occupation and the cruelty and cowardice that made it possible. In fact, if Camus had one goal as a writer, it was to understand how this happened and what it would take to stop it from happening again. And while Camus never gave an entirely satisfying answer to that problem, he explored it as well as anyone. He wasn't interested in categorical claims about good and evil. Instead, he thought about the simple choices we all make in everyday life, the compromises we all make, and how those can lead to awful consequences if we stop paying close attention to the world in front of us. The real plague that Camus was fighting, what he later called the human crisis, was a plague of separation. It was a world in which ideas became more important than people, in which otherwise decent people had become strangely indifferent to human suffering. Although the world has changed, that plague persists. So I reached out to Robert Zaretsky, a wonderful historian and philosopher at the University of Houston. Zaretsky is a terrific Camus scholar, and I wanted to talk to him about why Camus matters and why his ideas about the world continue to resonate so strongly in our time. I think regardless of the moment, Camus matters. Um, If we were to think about this moment, Sean, we've been whipsawed by a series of plagues over the past two years, and it's confronted us with questions, with problems that Camus addresses in both his fiction as well as in his essays. Once coronavirus exploded into the world in early 2020, there was a mad rush for his novel, The Plague. Bookstores couldn't keep it in stock. People who had already read the novel, people who had heard about the novel, believed that the novel held some kind of key, some kind of answer or set of answers to how we might think of, how we might respond to this unprecedented event in our lives. And I think people were right to think that. But we need to keep in mind that when Camus wrote The Plague, and it was published 75 years ago, it was published uh, in the spring of 1947, what Camus had in mind was not the bubonic plague. That's the allegory of the novel. But first and foremost, what he had in mind was war and occupation. And it's remarkable that 75 years later, we've moved from the allegorical to the all-too-real plague that he himself was addressing in the novel, namely war and occupation, the Second World War and then the occupation of France by Nazi Germany between 1940 and 1944. I don't know if there's been a similar rush to read the plague because of events now unfolding in Ukraine. And so this is one of the many reasons why 
Camus matters. He himself was wrestling with these issues. And he wrestled with them in a language that is just so accessible and so immediate. He never talks down to his readers. He treats his readers as an absolute equal with the knowledge that we are all in this together. And what's paramount at this very moment is that we are able not just to speak honestly and clearly to one another, with one another, but that this will enable us to act together in response to the crisis that we face. Yeah, and what I want to do here is begin really where Camus begins his own philosophical journey, and then we will make our way to the plague and some of these these ethical insights that are, are germane to our time and really to all time. And Camus starts with this myth of Sisyphus and this idea of the absurd. Now, many people have heard of Sisyphus, you know, the figure from Greek mythology. He's, you know, this poor sap who was condemned by the gods to roll his stupid boulder up and down the hill forever. And the conventional view of Sisyphus is kind of tragic, right? A model of futility and desperation. But Camus, as you know, wants us to imagine Sisyphus happy. Why? It's a great question. He wants us to imagine Sisyphus happy, in part because he wants us to imagine Albert Camus happy. One of the things that we need to keep in mind, Sean, is that when he begins to draft the essay that becomes the myth of Sisyphus, and he begins drafting it uh, in the second half of the 1930s. Camus himself has been visited by the absurd in a number of ways. His father dies when he's scarcely a year old. As a result of that, his mother takes Camus and his older brother from the town in which he was born, Mondovi in French Algeria, to Algiers, where they move in with his grandmother. The mother, as well as the uncle living in the house, are deaf and and semi-mute. They have limited vocabularies. All of them are illiterate. There are no books in the house. And no less than the reasons for the war, the atmosphere in which he's raised, it's an atmosphere that's defined by silence, strikes the young Camus as no less absurd. He goes on to the University of Algiers, a public university, not one of the elite schools that just about every other member of that generation of French intellectuals, I think of Simone Weil or Simone de Beauvoir or Jean-Paul Sartre, who all went to the École Normale Supérieure or the Sorbonne. Camus goes to a public university. And while he's playing one day on the soccer pitch, he begins to cough up blood. He's rushed to the hospital. Turns out he has tuberculosis. How absurd. He grows up in a working-class neighborhood of Algiers, Belcourt. He also confronts another kind of absurdity, namely that he's a French citizen, but he's a French citizen living in a place, French Algeria, that's not a colony, but is an integral part of the French nation. But it's a part of the French nation where the vast majority of its inhabitants, the indigenous peoples, 
the Arabs and the Berbers who lived in Algeria for centuries before the arrival of French and European colonists known as the Pieds Noirs are denied citizenship. And he's outraged by this absurdity as well. And it's as a young reporter for a left-wing newspaper in Algiers in the late 1930s that he writes about all of the inequities, all of the outrages that are experienced by the Arabs and Berbers of French Algeria. He writes about them so insistently that the newspaper itself is finally shut down by the French authorities in early 1940. And that too strikes him as absurd. And then there's yet another absurd event. It's the one that occurs in the spring of 1940 when six months after the declaration of war between France and Great Britain and Germany and Italy, the Germans actually invade France. Initial move to crack France's first defense line is concentrated artillery fire by railroad guns on the supposedly impregnable Maginot. Shell-marked pillboxes disgorge French defenders. Conquest was so easy. Surely the master race could win over the world. Artillery blasts French positions. And in a matter of six weeks, defeat France and occupy the country. And Camus, who at the time was working for a newspaper in Paris, finds himself part of what the French call the exode the exodus. How absurd to have lived in a country where you thought that tomorrow would be like today, which was like yesterday, where Republican law and Republican institutions would still be there, the way that the sun would rise and set day in and day out. And then one day, they've all melted into, into thin air. How absurd. All of these events, Sean, are playing out as he's drafting and revising the myth of Sisyphus. And so the absurd is really the uncanny guest who has entered not just Camus' life, but the lives of millions of others. And so this is why he turns to Sisyphus in order to make sense of not just what's happened to, to him, but what has happened to the world in the 1930s and early 40s. That's right. And it's a subtle but crucial distinction. And I just want to make it clear. Camus insisted that it's not the world itself that's absurd. The world just is. Absurdity is the result of a collision between the human desire for meaning on the one hand and the absolute silence of the world on the other. In other words, the world only appears absurd to us because we insist that it have some kind of meaning that it doesn't. And Camus explores all of this in his philosophical essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, which we're talking about. But he also explores it in his novel, The Stranger, which was published the same year as The Myth of Sisyphus in 1942. It's the companion to the philosophical ideas in The Myth of Sisyphus. And The Stranger is where Camus really captures the absurd experience, what it feels like for the individual in the world. And, you know, we have this character in that book, the protagonist, Merceau, who is the walking manifestation of absurdity. You know, he's weirdly indifferent 
to like everything and everyone, including his mother's own death. The famous opening line of the book is about how his mother may have died today or yesterday, he doesn't remember. And eventually this, this guy, he, he kills a man in a very banal and thoughtless way. I shook off the veil of sweat and of light that blinded me. I realized that I had shattered the impassive stillness of the afternoon and the shimmering silence of the beach. And so I fired again. Four shots like four fateful raps on the door to my destiny. And the thing about Marceau is that he's, in an odd way, sincere and truthful. But he's also totally alienated from the world, from other people. He's just a reflection of the coldness of the world itself. He's a reflection of the silence of the world itself. And, you know, eventually he kills someone and he kills them so easily because he can't recognize himself in another, because he can't see past his own narrow, thoughtless, absurd experience. Do you see that character in that book the same way or do you, do you see it a little differently? Or am I missing something important? No, I don't think you're missing anything. I, I think there are so many ways of understanding Merceau. It's not so much that, to my mind at least, Sean, that Merceau is absurd. Merceau is like the world. He simply is. He doesn't look for meaning. In a certain respect, he's a little bit like L'Homme Sauvage, the savage man portrayed by Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his second discourse that he's a man prior to society. And he lives, as a consequence, in the moment. He has no desires. He has only needs. After he's murdered the Arab, and of course the Arab is not named, and we can talk hours about that, at the end of the first part. In the second part, after he, in a way, is heaved into society by being arrested and imprisoned and charged with murder, he has that remarkable interview with the magistrate who wants to know why he shot the Arab, not once, but five times. Explain why you continue to shoot at the dead man. Why? And so the magistrate wants to know why he did it. I insist on hearing the answer. Why? Tell me why. And Merceau can't answer him. He can't give an answer. And it drives the magistrate insane, just as we're driven insane when we look to the skies and we want an answer and the skies don't respond, Sean. And at the climax, the magistrate pulls open the drawer to his desk, reaches in, pulls out a crucifix and waves it in the face of Merceau and says, Do you realize who this is? Yes, I do, monsieur. Do you want my life to be senseless? It doesn't matter to me. Do you want my life to be meaningless? I need an answer from you. There must be a reason why you did it. But he, it's one that he, Merceau, cannot supply. Yeah. And so I don't think Merceau is alienated from the world. He's at one with the world. He's alienated from society. Yeah. And that's why he strikes 
everybody else in the novel as a stranger. It's almost as if Camus is inviting us to imagine Merceau as happy, just as he wants us to imagine Sisyphus as happy. Right, but they're, they're, they're happy in a very hollow, inhuman way. And that is the kind of peculiar form of modern exile that Sisyphus represents in its own way and the stranger does, right? Like this guy, Merceau, is rootless in a very distinct and modern way. He's rootless in the way that so many people are today. You know, he lacks real, active, meaningful participation in a community. He's just an ego at sea mm-hmm. bumping up against other isolated egos at sea. And that's what life in a hollow, atomized, mm-hmm. solidarity-free society is. And for Camus, it's soul-crushing because it is so inhuman, because it does cut us off from other people. And for me, the most important thing to take away from this whole period of Camus' work, the absurd cycle, whether it's the myth of Sisyphus or the stranger, is that the world is, is sort of a mystery to us. It always will be. There are certain questions that just aren't answerable. And that means there are limits to human knowledge and therefore limits on human action. And if we forget these things, if we deny them, that will lead to trouble. And if we just leave it there, if we just say the world is meaningless and therefore nothing matters, nothing is true, that's just as deadly in the way that it is in The Stranger. Yeah, I think you're onto something really important there. I'm not sure that Camus is preoccupied by the notion of limits, of moderation, just yet. I don't think Mm. he's reached that point in the cycle of the absurd. I think he reaches that point in the cycle that follows, the cycle of rebellion. I think in both the cases of Merceau and Sisyphus, what Camus sees in both of them, I can't help but think of Camus' fascination with Nietzsche. Mm. Uh, He was reading a great deal of Nietzsche as a student at the University of Algiers. And one of the notions in Nietzsche that Camus is taken by is that of eternal recurrence. And you see passages in a few works of Nietzsche in which he takes this up. Most famously, there's an aphorism in The Gay Science which introduces us to a demon who comes into our bedroom in the wee hours of the morning and whispers in our ears, more or less along the lines of, look back on your entire life and looking back upon it, are you in a position to say, to affirm, to embrace everything that you've done up until this moment? Can you say yes? I'm willing to live this life and relive it for all of time. And if you can, you really are a kind of ubermensch. You're a kind of superman that you have done everything that you desired to do, that your life has been one of complete fulfillment and no remorse or regret. And in a way, He's thinking along these lines when he creates Merceau. He's thinking along these lines when he recreates Sisyphus. What fascinates me in his account of Sisyphus is not so much the pushing up of the boulder to the summit of the mountain, Sean, 
and not so much following it back down. But Camus tells us what interests him is the pause. When he reaches the summit and is watching the boulder tumble back down to the base of the mountain, that's the pause of reflection. And what is Sisyphus doing during that pause? I think that Camus is suggesting that he's looking back on his life. It's a life that is sensual. Sisyphus, Camus tells us, just loves the world, the physical world. He loves the Mediterranean. He loves the skies. He loves the sea. He loves the beaches. He loves his wife. He loves everything that is physical. That's why he doesn't want to die, right? He keeps cheating the gods out of death because he's so attached to the physical world. And so looking back during his pauses, this is what he's reflecting on. I've achieved this. So part of the problem here is that what Sisyphus does, right? You know, he makes that boulder his own. Mm -hmm. He finds meaning in the pushing of it. Exactly. And in a way, that's enough. But the problem for Camus is that that is not enough for most people. He is always tracing everything back to these deep metaphysical needs. The need for, for meaning and the need for direction, the need for some kind of guiding purpose. And the absurd means that the world itself doesn't satisfy any of those needs, right? And so then the question is, what does? And, you know, we have to remember, Camus was writing against the bloody backdrop of World War II. That is the world he's responding to. And that was a world where religion was fading and political movements like fascism and communism were becoming the new religions. They were sort of... Um, providing a false answer to the reality of the absurd. They would ground people in a history. They would connect people to an idea, to a community that was bigger than themselves. It made the world make sense. But that came at a huge cost for Camus. What was that cost? Well, the cost was his recognition that he had to rethink his philosophy. There are a couple of passages that I always found striking, Sean. It's in 42, 43 that he writes in his journal, the absurd teaches nothing. And so this scornful and prideful position assumed by Merceau and Sisyphus as loners, as being solitary creatures, that's simply not enough. And so he had to go beyond Sisyphus. He had to go beyond Merceau. They simply didn't provide any direction that Camus required in 1942. What do I do now? So he's trapped like a rat. He realizes that absurdity teaches nothing. And at roughly the same time, in another entry in his journal, he writes something to the effect of, what if a philosopher were told or discovered that everything he had thought up until now was wrong. He said, what would the response be? And he said, people would laugh at him. 
And then he goes on to write, more or less, but I've no choice but to take that risk. And so now he's beginning to understand that meaning, if it's to be found, is not to be found in that solitary act of defiance of the gods that we see with Sisyphus, or that in another register we see with Merceau. It's to be seen in the collective action of human beings who refuse this meaninglessness that the silent universe imposes upon us and instead recognize that meaning can be had in a collective action that defends their dignity as human beings. And it's at this moment, more or less, that he joins the resistance in France. We'll be back with more of Vox Conversations, The Philosophers, after a short break. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear Secret Sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know, for Camus, any any ideology or, or faith or worldview that papered over the absurd by anchoring our sense of meaning to some story about history or God or justice, that may work in the sense that it can fulfill these needs we have for meaning and direction, and it can offer the illusion of truth or certainty. But again, for Camus, there is no absolute certainty in this world. And if you look for absolute certainty in politics, if you find it in some theory of history or, or justice, you will become a strange kind of nihilist, right? Because for Camus, nihilism isn't necessarily refusing to believe anything. It is refusing to believe in what is. It is a form of blindness mm -hmm. that comes from loving ideas. 
more than people. The, mm-hmm. the phrase he has in his notebooks is that it, it is intelligence without love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's something we should always keep in mind when it comes to not just Camus, but when it comes to the way that we understand politics and the ways in which we engage with our world, uh, with others and with politics. Camus was worried about the way in which human beings tend to substitute abstractions for the reality of our world. Yeah. Just as at that very same moment, Jews in France were no longer thought as men and women, they were thought of as Jews. Or just as Arabs and Berbers in French Algeria were not thought as men and women, they were thought as Arabs and Berbers. And so he's appalled by the consequences of thinking only in abstractions. And he deepens this point when he reaches a cycle of rebellion, which is formed by his philosophical essay, The Rebel, his novel, The Plague, and his play, The Scrupulous Assassins. He understood that the only ethical position for a human being to take was to be aware that all of us carry this infection of abstractions, and we have to be especially attentive to the way in which we write and talk, to avoid them as much as possible. That is part of the danger in in escaping absurdity in politics, right? This tendency to love ideas more than people or abstractions more than experience. Well, this is what he talks about, for example, in The Rebel. I mean, The Rebel is is the kind of person that he juxtaposes to the revolutionary. Camus is horrified by the nature and the consequences of revolution because it's attached to abstract ideals, Sean, which is what you've been emphasizing, and rightly so. It's the sort of attachment in which you're not only willing to sacrifice your life, but you're willing to sacrifice the lives of countless others in order to achieve or realize that ideal, that idea, or that abstraction. The rebel, as opposed to the revolutionary, Camus tells us, is somebody who never loses sight of the humanity, not just of those on his or her side, but the humanity of those they are opposing. The rebel, unlike the revolutionary, tells his opponent, I refuse to allow you to violate my dignity, my integrity as a human being, but at the very same moment, I will always acknowledge your humanity. Yeah, and that's why Camus detested the ideologues who could only see and think in the language of their ideologies, just as he hated the functionaries who stopped thinking for themselves and were just following orders. And whether that's the police officer on the streets of Moscow right now locking up protesters for no other reason than that's what they're told to do, or whether, as it was in his time, the German soldiers who were throwing human beings into ovens. These are human beings who aren't really human anymore. These are human beings who have become instruments of ideas or forces. Mm-hmm. And that for Camus is the death of humanity mm-hmm. uh, because it, it, is, it is the loss of any recognition 
of the human being in front of you. You're, you're seeing people as things, as non-people, as, as just a means to some other end. There's, so there's a kind of blindness there, a moral blindness that is literally deadly. Mm-hmm. Is this what he meant, Robert, when he talked about the triumph of, of politics over ethics, the, the, the triumph of, of bureaucracy over moral agency in the modern world? Oh, yeah. I think this is precisely what he meant. Camus belonged to the French Communist Party for a couple of years when he was still a student at the University of Algiers, but they threw him out because he simply wouldn't toe the line. And he was never aligned with a political party for the rest of his life. The moment you become a member of a party, you stop being an individual. Right. And you're no longer capable of thinking independently. You become nothing more, nothing less than a voice for the party. You speak on behalf of the party. Camus thought that political parties spelt the death of meaningful politics. You know, the world of 2022 is obviously very different from the world of 1945 or 1944. But it's not as different as we might hope. Even after the war was over, after the the Nazi death cult had been defeated, Camus still believed that the human plague or the human crisis, as he called it, that led to World War II, that made World War II possible, the plague of meaning and separation and and various other things, that that still persisted. And after all, what followed World War II? We still had a world split down the middle by, you know, competing ideologies, a world that was sitting on the precipice of nuclear annihilation. And I don't know what you see, Robert, but when I look at the war in Europe today, which again is different from World War II in all kinds of ways, but it's the same in that ultimately people are dying for ideas, terrible, stupid ideas, ideas about history, ideas about the destiny of a particular country. These are abstractions. These are not real things, but people are dying for them, and that makes them real in a horrifying way. When you look at Ukraine right now, what do you see? I see a people that is rebelling against the very same forces that exploded into the world in the 1940s, Sean, what Putin represents is more or less what Adolf Hitler represented. It's a form of murderous ethno-nationalism, an ethno-nationalism that denies the possibility of other peoples to live as what they are, in this case, Ukrainians. It's a force, it's a power that is completely indifferent, if not scornful, to the dignity of human life, the integrity of human life, that is wedded to this idea of a greater Russia. It's embodied in a single man, and the consequences are simply mind-boggling. What strikes me is, for example, the words of Zelensky, who has repeatedly appealed to the Russian soldiers, telling them in Russian, we don't want this war. We don't want to kill you. Please go home. And in a way, this is profoundly Camusian. Yeah. The Ukrainians under Zelensky are acknowledging the humanity of these conscripts. 
you're like us. I'm speaking to you in your language. You don't belong here, and you know you don't belong here. We don't want to kill you. He's telling them in a way to cease being an instrument and to be a human being again, which is to say, see what's in front of your eyes. Yes, absolutely. What's happening in Ukraine is Camus' whole philosophy of revolt in action. For Camus, a rebel is a human being who says no and yes at the same time. Mm -hmm. No to the destruction of human life. Yes to the solidarity that emerges out of that refusal. Because when you take a stand against barbarism, as people in Ukraine are doing right now, you discover that others are doing the same. You discover that despite that silence of the world that Merceau never escapes or that Sisyphus embraces by himself, there is something in humanity that transcends the fact of our condition. And that something is our collective will to live and to defend life. You know, this is his famous line in The Rebel is, I rebel, therefore we exist. And the great irony of this war is that it's premised on Putin's idea that Ukraine isn't a real country, that the Ukrainian identity is a mirage, that there is no Ukraine. And because he has invaded their country and forced them to stand together and defend their lives, the Ukrainian identity will be more real and stronger than it has ever been because he forced them to say no together. And that action is what makes a community possible. I mean, it really is revolt, real revolt in real time right now, just as Camus envisioned it. I can't say it any better than that, Sean. I think you're absolutely right. And I think Camus would be nodding his head right now as well. I hope so, you know, because these things can seem a little abstract and disconnected, but they're not, you know, and, and this idea of the absurdity of the world was so important to Camus' understanding of politics because we are born into a world without inherent meaning, but we do look around and we see fellow creatures who share that same condition and yet we all choose to live in spite of it. And that is our collective dignity. That is the basis of, of the human community, which is why he always said, you know, to say no to suicide, as he does in The Myth of Sisyphus, the book, is also to say no to murder. It is to say yes to the value of life itself. And that act of affirmation extends beyond the individual. It reveals the part of humanity that must always be defended. And it's being defended on the streets of Ukraine as we speak. Um, I think that's spot on. Though, not that I want to put a damper on any of this, but it reminds us why Camus matters and will always matter because in both The Rebel and in The Plague, he reminds us that the position of the rebel cannot be maintained indefinitely. Sooner or later, the rebel will either fall back into a position of acceptance and passivity or fall forward into the position of the revolutionary, that the rebel, in other words, will become the oppressor, if not falling back into the position of being among the countless oppressed. The plague is always ready to call up its rats again. It's always already with us.
stay with us for more Vox Conversations, The Philosophers, after one last quick break. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. You know, there was a quote that I bumped up against when I was preparing for this conversation that I had forgotten. And this is from Camus. The 17th century was a century of mathematics. The 18th century was a century of physical science. And the 19th century of biology. Our 20th century is the century of fear. What do you think the 21st century is? What do you think Camus would call it? I think, especially in wake of the response of Ukrainians to the Russian invasion, he would say that the 21st century is the century where there's no hope, but that's no reason to despair. That's the thing about Camus. He never believed in hope, but he didn't believe in despair either. He wrote in his notebooks that he was pessimistic about the human condition but optimistic about humankind. Mm -hmm. And in the end, Camus' whole philosophy really is just a plea for simple decency. It's not a blueprint, and it lacks the prescriptive power of some grand, ambitious moral philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I guess the question for me is, what does that mean for someone listening right now? What does that mean for someone who's just trying to exist in the world (laughs) in their own tiny corner? as we all are. I don't know what you think, Robert, but to me, the only answer Camus ever really gives is pretty simple and, and, and pretty humble. You know, it, it is something like, you can look at the horror right now in Ukraine. You can look at the horrors in Yemen or Afghanistan, or you can look at what's happening to the Uyghur population in China or wherever. There's lots of suffering to go around and you can be outraged. But you also almost certainly can't really do anything <laughs> to stop it as an individual. But that outrage that you feel, I think Camus would say that's the spark of common humanity. Your task is to take that spark and commit to being a more attentive, compassionate human being wherever you are. And that's enough. It has to be because that's all there is, right? We're all rolling our boulder up the hill. But if you look to your left and your right, you will see other human beings rolling their boulders as well. Mm -hmm. And what is there to do but lock arms and, and push in solidarity. All of that is true, Sean, but it's not just a question of solidarity. I think it's also a question of, and this is going to sound odd, it's a question of love. After he completed the cycle of rebellion in the early 1950s, he began to look forward to a new cycle, and he called that cycle the cycle of love. 
And the only work we have from that cycle is his incomplete novel, The First Man. He started to write the manuscript in the late 1950s, but in January of 1960, he was killed when the car in which he was driving slammed into a tree on the way from his home in southern France to Paris. He was killed immediately, and he was carrying the manuscript of the first man with him. It was flung from the car. It was given to his wife, Francine. She held on to it. She didn't publish it. After her death, her children, twins, decided to go ahead and publish it. And it's one of the most extraordinary works. It's heartbreakingly beautiful. And this is his first essay of what it means, love. And for Camus, it was love of family, even when that family is, in some sense, wrapped in silence. It's love of one's past, of one's people. It's love of one's soil, but it's also love of one's humanity and that shared humanity with others. It's extraordinary the ways in which he is just ramifying, the ways in which we can understand love in this novel. And so, yes, yes, solidarity. We see that we are in this mess together and we have to work together. But Camus, I think, would also want us to remember, do this lovingly. Be attentive to the world. Be attentive to one another love the world, love one another. And not in any squishy, touchy-feely sense, but in the sense of just embracing it and knowing that you're part of it. That's wonderful. I, I think you nailed it there. In the end, Camus inspired love. Love of humanity, love of the world, love of the stories and symbols that make community possible in the first place. And the journey in his work, is the journey from individual to collective revolt. It is the outward expansion of the individual's consciousness towards an identification with other human beings who share the same absurd condition as you do. And he wrote that real generosity towards the future lies in giving all to the present. And I think that says it all. And I think I'll... I'm going to leave it right there. Robert, it was an absolute privilege to have this conversation with you. And I thank you for, for being here with us. I feel the same way, Sean. Thank you so much for, for all that you've had to say. This is the first episode in our new series, The Philosophers. We're doing this series not just because we love ideas. We're doing it because we think these ideas from the past can help us live better lives today. While Camus doesn't offer us a moral blueprint, he does have some suggestions about how to be a more engaged and compassionate human being. And that's what I want to leave you with. Camus gave a speech at Columbia University in 1946 called The Human Crisis. It was his first and only trip to America. The French people sense that mankind is still under threat, and they also sense that to continue living, they must rescue a certain idea of mankind from the crisis that grips the whole world. 
out of loyalty to my country, I've chosen to speak about this human crisis. Since I'm here to talk about... That's the actor Vigo Mortensen, reading the human crisis at an event hosted by the Maison Francaise at Columbia University in 2016. It was for the 70th anniversary of Camus' speech. At the end of it, he told the audience what he thought they could do to help create a more humane world. At the end of this long night, we finally know what we must do in the face of this crisis-torn world. What must we do? The first thing is to see people as people and not as abstractions or obstacles. The second thing is to think and speak as clearly as possible. Camus always talked about the importance of dialogue and persuasion, and that requires openness and clarity. The third thing is to not let your ideas about the world or your political worldview become your primary source of meaning. Politics isn't made for that. And if you look for it there, you'll lose part of your humanity. And the last thing is to be modest in your thoughts and actions. Camus believed that the cruelest acts performed by human beings have always been done with the confidence of absolute certainty. But nobody in this world, now or ever, Camus says, should have the right to decide that their own truth is good enough to impose on others. To the extent that we do find truth in this world, we do it with other people and within the limits of our absurd condition. And that has to be enough because it's all we have. Episodes of the Philosopher series will be coming soon, right here in the Vox Conversations feed. So be sure you're subscribed. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. The Philosopher series theme music was composed by Eric Janikis. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, if you didn't like the show, we want to hear about it. So let us know what you think of this new series by emailing voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, seriously, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. <laughs>